Hi everyone and welcome back to the Yikes podcast, um, the podcast about all the things in the world that can make us yikes um, from climate change and like how can we tackle it as a crisis to social justice issues and oppression um, and we try and make all of those things um, kind of easier to understand, more accessible and work towards um, a more liberated future together. We're so excited um, because this week, well last week really, we had our first ever live event and So we thought, you know, beyond like the platform that we have here, like we would love to like organize, um, well, actually some real life events, but thanks Mm. to COVID, thanks to Rona, all of that, we're still in lockdown, we'll do a live event online. And we had an incredible panel, well, in a panel with incredible panelists, really. Um, and mm-hmm. so we're just quickly going to introduce this um, because then we're actually going to use the audio for this week's episode so you can listen to it, make it easier and yeah, just get you inspired by all of these wonderful people. Yeah, we were super, super inspired um, by all of our panellists and they'll be introduced as, we, as the episode starts. Um, but we really recommend listening to this episode, really engaging with it, what the different people have to say because there are so many different perspectives that are shared here. Um, and we're really proud of this event, I think, because it was just really great to find have a space of some sort to share how we can connect our movements um, and the panel itself is about the impact that the pandemic has had on movements for social change. Um, so it's t- titled COVID and Change. So we really hope that you enjoy it. Please do engage with the panelists themselves um, on the different social medias that we'll put in the bio. Um, and yeah, just enjoy, listen, learn, engage, unlearn. Um, and we'd love to hear how you find this episode. And thank you so much to all of the people who like joined the actual event and the live streams. Thank you so much also for your donations towards the event. They're all going to charities uh, chosen by each panelist and um, we'll also put those in the show notes so uh, you can continue to support the panelists and also the work that they are doing and that they are passionate about. Um, and with much further ado, let's get into it. we have today we have Edward who is a passionate and dedicated politics finalist with an entrenched interest in humanism sustainable development and political philosophy outside of academia Edward works as a community organizer alongside the pan-african anti-colonial youth-led organization known as the tribe named Atari which is centered around transformative justice and community healing we also have um Nadia Whittam MP um <laughs> the MP um adding on the end because <laughs> Nadia is um was elected in 2019 as the Member of Parliament for Nottingham East and is and at 24 is Parliament's youngest MP. Nadia takes home a worker's wage as an MP, donating the remainder of her MP salary to local causes. And before her election, Nadia worked as a hate crime worker in Nottingham and prior to that as a care worker. Inspired, by her enter, inspired to enter politics in response to the bedroom tax, Nadia is a passionate advocate for participatory democracy and remains a committed activist and campaigner on migrant rights, workers' rights, climate justice and child poverty. Our final panellist, last but not least, 
for sure. Um, we have Katouche, who is a singer and content creator um, who's passionate about fostering a product, product, productive dialogue <laughs> about the intersection of black and disabled identities. A recent first class grad in BA history, Katouche enjoys um, sharing the knowledge of her degree through her advocacy for black disabled young people. Featured on platforms such as Kandaka um, in 2017, BBC Radio 1 Extra in 2018, Taboo Magazine, Black Ballad and LAPP in 2020. Katusha is also a makeup enthusiast who creates online content to promote diversity and beauty and highlight issues of inclusion. So Joe is going to ask the first question. We're so excited to have We're all so of you We're so excited. Oh, uh, I've been looking forward so to this so much. <laughs> um, yeah, just to kick us off really, and anybody can go first, whoever feels most comfortable. Um, and then you can also bounce off each other, obviously. Um, so what do you think um, this pandemic has really like made visible um, or generally exposed about our society and within our society? I just, I'll, I'll go first. You go. I was, I was going to let someone else go first. But um, well, firstly, it's really great to be on here. And I've been so looking forward to this. And it's such an honour to be sharing a platform with Joe and Michaela and also Katush and Edward. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have. Um, I think for me, it's it's three things that the pandemic's highlighted, and I think they all they all sort of cross over and relate to each other a bit as well. So I'd say the first thing it's it's shown and it's entrenched is widening inequality because the effects of that have been borne out during the pandemic. So, for example, we know that ethnic minority communities have experienced a disproportionately high death rates. Um, that if you have a learning disability, you're six times more likely to die of COVID. Um, and then all of these systemic and structural disadvantages like overcrowded housing, um, the prevalence of people of colour and migrants and women and people with intersecting identities who are in front-facing jobs as key workers and have greater exposure to the virus. Um, and it's not just the decisions that have been made in the last year that have caused this. It's the decisions that have been made in the last 10 years. So in fairness to Boris Johnson, it's not just his fault. It's also David Cameron's fault. It's Nick Clegg's fault. It's Theresa May's fault. Because it's because of the austerity that they inflicted upon our communities that we went into this pandemic with not enough hospital beds, not enough PPE. Health inequality has been widening for the last 10 years. Um, so I'd say the second thing is the impact of austerity and the impact that that's had, particularly on NHS and social care. I think our social care system has really been shown to be just not fit for purpose. But then I think the final thing, to end on a hopeful note, is it's shown the power of community organising and solidarity and togetherness. Um, while we've seen people really struggling during the pandemic. We've also seen working class people really stepping up to the plate in the face of a government that has failed us. So like mutual aid groups have been cropping up all over the place, helping people in self-isolation. Um, loads of cafes and restaurants in my constituency were providing free school meals for kids. And I think that, I mean, even what we're doing tonight and what you guys have been doing is just an amazing display of solidarity during the pandemic too. Mm, yeah, I think all of that is super, super 
um true and important and interesting it's important to look at it in I guess the context of the long term as well as in what's just happened in the last year because I think maybe there's too much that's focused on as if the problem was just the pandemic and not what kind of led us up to this point um and I'd even say that as someone who works in healthcare settings that's something that I've actually seen spoken about quite a lot especially from primary care people who are saying that the reason that the UK has been hit by the pandemic so much worse is because we are so that we how social care is so bad in the first place and um the inequalities that exist in this country um were so kind of wide in the first place that it meant that we weren't really ready um for something like this to hit I don't think anyone would be ready for a pandemic but you know what I mean um Edward do you have something that you could like feed in on um what the pandemic might have made more visible especially as your work during this year that you'll probably be able to touch on um has been I don't know really I think really heightened during especially the summer of last year yeah um <laughs> I was kind of laughing when that, when that question came up, I feel like, and I definitely agree with what Nadia was saying, and I wanted to say thank you to her for kind of outlining those examples. I feel like for me, um, the pandemic definitely um, illuminated the, I think the general apathy of um, the government, you know, I'm not trying to make it like, a, oh, it's the government's fault, because there were so many different factors that play, but I feel like definitely um, the apathy, I mean, from, the whole um situation with children and you know um the food shortages. I mean to to hear that for the first time ever, UNICEF were having to give out packages in mm. the UK. That was crazy to hear. You know um, though even when we look at the the handling of the pandemic and just you know I feel like and again I'm not trying to make it a thing, but I do have to be as candid as I can. Um, just because I, I was, I'm in uni, I remember last year when um you know we we're going into lockdown and I was still in uni and I remember um comments about how yeah people be prepared for your family members to die and stuff like that. And um truth be told it happened and I just feel like even that, you know, the, the handling behind that, um and then especially this summer, you know, and obviously Michaela like that's how we met Big Sis. Um, you know, this summer and what took place, not just not just in the UK, but globally. But yeah, if I'm talking specifically UK and um, yeah, I mean, obviously as, as a conversation goes, we'll unravel it even more, but um, I don't know where to start. There's a lot of angles I can go with this, but um, yeah, I think for me, what I'll say on it right now, because I, I want to think on it further, is definitely, it's kind of shone some light on the, the apathy. And how can I ever forget um, Windrush? That was a big one. You know, it's you know the deportations and um there's a there's an auntie, there's an auntie, there's an auntie, um Paulette Wilson. Um, she was one of the like main advocates, he was a campaigner for the Windrush generation. And when things took off in the summer, unfortunately, um she passed. And I remember reading a newspaper article, and I think she was she was in, I don't know if it was in the Commons or she was in a parliament office. And they said that she just had like, I know people were sending letters and emails and texts like, yeah, we're trying to support what's going on. And it was just a look of indignation in her face. And she passed away tired, you know. Um, and that just kind of hit home for me particularly. And um, obviously as we kind of continue the conversation, I'll elaborate further. But yeah, I think for me, like my first point is therefore just the apathy of it all. And I'm sorry to kind of rain and make it negative, you know, but um, yeah. Yeah, I think that. But then on the flip side as well, because I, I liked how you mentioned community, I feel like more than ever, 
despite us not physically being together, I feel like, you know, these past couple of months have definitely shown like the power behind humanism, the power behind community, you know, community organizing, just like with the different Zooms, you know, you could be on a Zoom call with people for like hours, you know, but I won't even, I mean, obviously now Zoom fatigue, you know, it's, it's settling in, but you could just be on it and make memories, you know, like during my summer, my whole world got put on pause and I was just on a computer 24 seven, you know, but you make memories, you, you laugh, you cry together, you know, yeah, it, it's a beautiful set. It, it was definitely, definitely has been bittersweet, but yeah, that's how I kind of start with it. That's what I, I take from it so far. I really want to say like, thank you for sharing. That was really vulnerable and personal. And um, I'm just like really grateful to be sharing space with you again, because you always just tell your truth and you don't hold back. And I think that's really important because I think so often um, people I, like for for many reasons but people are holding back things and I think that having that vulnerability and I'm so sorry that you've experienced um those things in the last year because that is really moving. I just wanted to hold space for that to be something that was like important and moving and not just kind of move on from that straight away onto something else because um yeah I'm really like grateful that you that you shared that and I'm looking forward to to talking more about um what you want to talk about especially around Windrush and different things and different experiences that you've had later yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I guess like both of you have already kind of alluded to like the the intersections that are happening and that have been exposed in the different, like, you know, what, what we are seeing of like how COVID is disproportionately affecting different communities, uh, exposing the long-term effects of authority um, and injustices and just general like apathy. And, but then on the flip side, also the complexity of like solidarity and networking and stuff. Um, Katish, could you um, speak to whatever has come up for you, um, you know, hearing the others, but then also just generally what the pandemic has kind of illuminated for you? Um, well, thank you again for having me. I feel so honored and humbled to be speaking with you all this evening. And I agree with everything that um, Nadia and Edward have already alluded to and said, it really did resonate with me. And I love that that sort of broader context has really been brought home because I feel like a pandemic, of course, it's in the name, it's happening everywhere, more or less, but it's happening everywhere in such a different way. And that's because of whatever the conditions were that it met in that space. And I think that's a highlight that is really important because yeah, I think holding, you know, holding those with the relative power to account is absolutely imperative. But I think something that I'll raise for me that's really been brought home is basically how like capitalism pervades how we choose to live our individual lives and how I think one of the biggest things we've heard the most is how we prioritize um, productivity as the measure of our like wealth, our value. And I think as a disabled person, because that kind of is the consensus in how we live, you live outside of that concept in that people treat you as if you have no space in this. So the pandemic has shown that it's not as fixed as maybe it was presented to us. It's not absolute. It's not the only way of life. Um, the change of pace in society has highlighted so many things that are wrong with the way that we were living before. And just in general, things to do with sustainability, consumption, even though they've increased in a lot of ways, 
because of the nature of the context we live in at the same time it's really I think brought home the importance of these issues to a lot of people where they've been thinking wow I did what sort of life was I living before this that now I'm seeing that in of itself so many things that I was able to do before I can still do now without the additional sort of toll that it takes on our bodies and our minds and I think further to that point is how the disabled community have been very you know incensed I suppose at the fact that so many of the things that were seen as completely non-viable for us prior to the pandemic working from home you know certain sort of adjustments that they're now completely feasible when there is no way otherwise that things can get done I think like everybody said the pandemic more than anything has exacerbated the existing context we're in and because it touches everybody it has pushed the general population to call into question what they accepted was right what they accepted was normal but if you're somebody who exists on the periphery of society anyway i think all it's done is really bring home and reinforce to you that you have to keep pushing back against what you've been forced into essentially so for me that's been like the main thing for me um every disabled person experience this pandemic has been different but the broader consensus of the lack of value that's been placed on our livelihoods is a reoccurring and persistent point that comes up every second of the day and i think what i want and we haven't got to what we want but what i want is i need everybody to just be a little bit just a little bit please god more radicalized where they're understanding that reform to systems doesn't necessarily yield what people would like to think it will it's very cosmetic and things can be changed in a radical way even when they're not incentivized by something like a pandemic you have to create and realize the context that you want to live in and demand that of the people who are holding that away from you that's me that was so well said and whenever you you speak i always am like blown away i remember i actually found out about your work during the during the pandemic um because nina tame had shown uh, had shared your work talking about the social model of disability and i found that really really interesting um because we'd studied it in in my university in my courses before but the way that you articulate things makes them so clear because i guess there's this difficult um kind of balance that not even balance but there's there's these two things that have been happening i think during this pandemic as more more me as an observer um of seeing there being as you're saying like opening up of things that were said to never be possible um for the disabled community like working from home and making things accessible and like pretty much making everything being possible to happen from home that yeah so many people had said was completely impossible which is really like I guess beneficial in, in for the table community in that way but then also we've already seen as people are transit as we're starting to maybe transition out of this pandemic that these things have been taken away so soon so it shows um the importance of intention with create with these kind of different changes as well because I guess without the intention being there um they they will just not really be kind of held in that space and I, and I guess it's really exposed at least to me and from my perspective of um how ableist our society is like and how ableism is completely entrenched in this society um and I don't think and this is to like completely to my shame that I don't think I was as aware of how 
entrenched it was into everything um, before this pandemic. And I think this is definitely something for me that has been made more visible um, and that I'm now trying to act to try and work um, in solidarity with other people to try and change, especially being someone who works in medical environments where that is <laughs> a huge problem. Um, so I'm actually going to just move on to the next kind of question that we had, which is, kind of we've talked about things that have been been made more visible by the pandemic and then I kind of there's something that I read during the um during the first lockdown I think and it was an essay by Aaron Dutty Roy who's an amazing writer and um she was writing in the Financial Times about the idea of the pandemic being a portal um and I want to explain that a bit because when I first wrote this question one of my friends was like no one's gonna understand what you mean by the pandemic being a portal that's too abstract um (laughs) so this is a quote from Aaron Dutty Roy's um, essay that I'll just quickly read. Um, so historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the, with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our data banks and our dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little with little luggage, ready to imagine a new world and ready to fight for it. So this was obviously written like way at the start of the pandemic, where I think maybe a lot of us had more hope for how radical the future might be post-pandemic. But I still think there's so much um, in this idea of the pandemic maybe being a portal in different ways that um, I think is meaningful. Um, And so we've talked about maybe like the visibility that um, the pandemic might have given to different social struggles and social justice issues. Um, But I'm interested to see if anyone thinks that that has actually translated to to change um, and if it's just been us like kind of learning lessons without applying them, which I think we saw a lot during the Black Lives Matter movement, at least from my opinion, I saw a lot during the Black Lives Matter movement of people saying stuff and then not applying it. Um, or do you think that we are still hanging on to like a lot of the baggage of the old world and trying to drag that through? Um, so I think, I guess it depends who you mean by we. I think in some perhaps cosmetic ways it has or perhaps it's unfair to say cosmetic ways but I think that the start of some quite bold change is potentially happening so for example I think the consensus is shifting away from austerity and I think we have we have won that argument um this was happening before the pandemic throughout Corbyn's leadership um but that doesn't mean that the Tories won't implement austerity. Again, when we hear these hardcore anti-lockdown Tories talking about wanting to end lockdown, that's not because they care about mental health and poverty, otherwise they wouldn't have voted to cut mental health services and plunge people into poverty. It's because they want a return to austerity and conditions after lockdown would allow that to happen. Um, So Boris Johnson said that there would be no return to austerity and we have to hold him to that. And if, it, if in fact there is no return to austerity, then that shows that in this last decade, post 2010, working class people didn't need to pay for the mistakes of the super rich and for the banking crisis, the global banking crisis that they did nothing to create. It shows that austerity wasn't necessary. And if they do implement austerity, then that will show that the government is is even crueler than we might have thought they were. Um, 
I think another sort of site of progress is young people in our generation. Um, I think we in particular are very aware of inequalities that exist in society. And I think that's largely because we grew up under conservative governments um, and we've we've seen those cuts and the, the real life impact that they've had on us, on our families, our friends, our neighbours. Um, and I, again, yeah, I think that started before the pandemic, but the generational inequality that already existed, I think has been solidified during the pandemic. So we've seen the A-level results fiasco, um, people's experiences at university for those young people who were at uni, um, young people losing jobs at a, a disproportionate rate, um, being locked down in cramped conditions. And I think that's further going to politicize our generation. Um, I was gonna say Gen Z, but I'm kind of a zillennial, like my 96 to 99 babies where you are. Yeah, I, me, I'm here, Joe's here as well. I think all of us, all of us, are you not? 2000, 2000. 2000, I did not know that, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm acting so shocked. You're the same age as my little brother, that's wild. Um, I was joking with uh, friends that I feel like there should be a support group for mixed race people born between 96 and 99, because we are like perpetually used to being part of both worlds and neither. <laughs> Literally, like, who are we? <laughs> I love that. That's so real, though. Oh my gosh. Are you enjoying this podcast? Um, we really hope that you are. The Yikes podcast um, is able to happen mostly because of the financial support from our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Yeah, I mean, Michaela sounds like a super duper advertising capitalist girl, but actually, we're two anti capitalist babes in a capitalist world. And um, by you supporting like the show, um, it just generally sustains it. It allows us to like pay our guests that uh, now and then come on the show, and it allows us to do you know much more community work and be able to support different charities and just generally you know make this make this thing happen. Yeah, and if you don't know what Patreon is, because I think a lot of people might not know. It is basically a platform that allows you to support creators or podcasts or different kind of groups that you really like um, and you can financially support the, their work directly um, and it kind of stops us having to rely on things like ads which are quite annoying, yeah. Um, <laughs> so on Patreon, on the Yikes Podcast Patreon, there are different um, tiers that you can subscribe to so they start from just £3 a month and then kind of go up from there. Um, for the £5 a month one, you get a bonus episode every single week, um, which is just us chatting about a different thing that's just happened in the news or something personal about our lives. Um, they're much more kind of intimate, those episodes, um, and we really enjoy making them. We do Q&As as well over on the Patreon, and it's just another kind of space that we can interact with you guys. And we really love it. And we're so grateful for our patrons who have made this show possible up until now. And if you'd like to become someone who supports this podcast, if you have the ability to do that, um, then you can check out our Patreon in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash the Yikes podcast. Um, and you can check out the different tiers there and sign up to support this show. We thank you so much for your support so far. And we hope that you're enjoying this episode.
when we talk about because I feel like you know polarization was already so prevalent especially in the UK um before the pandemic obviously hit like was like Brexit and then but also you know right and left kind of being like more polarized than ever before and this continues to happen with like anti-vax now and like you know lockdown and everything and like I was alluding to earlier you know even even in a pandemic where like you have a national lockdown they still deport people and like showing like how you know like this like um I guess polarization of like everything and even under the gaze of care um is for only a certain specific groups of people and you know also like with like how fast can we open up the economy again I saw like eat out help out trend today and I was just like are we back to that now um but yeah so um yeah Katisha do you want to um you know talk anything about like about the portal pandemic as a portal and also maybe how if and how your activism might have changed because of that um um yeah I think I definitely agree with what you both said you and Nadia um especially the zillennial point that is I was literally having this conversation with the other day and now I know I can proudly say I'm a zillennial that's brilliant because I'm 97 so that's you know how it is um let me think so the portal so I love it as an idea and I wish that more people were prepared to take it on but I don't know I'm a bit cynical I can concede that I'm a bit more cynical I think that there are lessons to be learned in the pandemic definitely and I think that even if maybe the tangible impact that we wanted to have may take a while to set in I think that I hope that people carry with them the sort of the spirit of this sort of feeling that I want people to hold that fire in their stomach where they're like, this isn't, this isn't enough for me. This is enough for, for any of us. I think for me, that's, that's what I'd like to see because I don't really believe that transformative sort of lasting change happens in a split second. I think it's something that has to be continually reinforced so I don't think it takes necessarily time to implement because when they're ready, they'll do it, but it needs to be continually reinforced. So I want that persistence to be something that we carry onwards with. That's me person. That's my biggest thing. I want even the people who feel the way we do now, I don't want as soon as life returns to normal because they're no longer being touched by the sort of issues that would typically only face certain groups within society to fall back into that apathy. Because to me, it's that indifference that to me is the most um, dangerous sort of um, obstacle to change that kind of apathy that exists for people who sit very nicely in the middle of society you know unperturbed by these sorts of issues that have been allowed to coast along that now even within the framework of lockdown they're not experiencing the breadth of what this could mean for them and they're like this is just rather inconvenient I wish the government was more competent and then just circle back to the old way of life like we need that perception, that like mental space to be eradicated in my opinion. I was gonna just quickly um like touch on the the being comfortable in in what was normal because this is something that Joe and I talked on the podcast um about actually today's episode, which is on the normalization of crisis, plug plug. Um <laughs> but we talk about um how we can you can get so comfortable in normal but then I then I had to check myself and be like well normal was a problem as well like normal had a whole load of problems and it was my own privilege that made me comfortable in normal and I need to check myself on that and I think a lot of us like need to just collectively check ourselves on what parts of normal that were actually harmful 
will we do we want to still go back to and how instead can we envision better than normal because I know it's difficult like in these times I've definitely had times like today even I've just been a bit like I'm so bored of this I'm so bored of being stuck at home all the time and all these different things I just want to go back to normal but then actually I think there's there's so much beauty and power in envisioning more than that and going beyond normal and being like how can we think about more than that and how can we not just sit in this space of settling and instead move forward into like kind of demanding more and demanding this better future that we all deserve um i think firstly just on the <clears throat> on the portal point uh, i think that's a very interesting like like the imagery there is amazing um i feel like we have entered a portal you know um for and i say this because in this new world that we're kind of seeking to to build because that's a, that's the first thing i think the fact that because i was speaking to marina earlier on we've been having certain conversations about what does a new world look like how can we sit down and think about it you know and we were never like i'm only 20 you know but i've never had a conversation there's always been conversations around tearing things down and dismantling and that's great and that's important but it's also about like what does it look like to rebuild what comes next and all those talks around sustainability and it's only really been after we've entered that portal that those type of conversations have been happening. You know, I've been having these sort of convos with my friends around what does education look like? What does labor look like in a new world for us? The ones that will come after us, how can we, you know, like Michaela is a, a good ancestor, conversations around being good ancestors. All of these are certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Discourse that's never been had before. I think similarly, like, even with down to the, the power of youth, I think young people now more than ever, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's just a, there's a mad, cause I feel like before it was tend to be, oh yeah, yeah. Like young people are important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think now we can see that like, it's clear um, the, 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 the doctrine of passing it forward and to pay it forward and to understand that there's a mantle that you can have temporarily and you can do what you can and you pass it on and understand that. And whatever we do, you know, as activists, that we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, like we, you know, we're not reinventing anything or because everything that's ever, that everything that we do, it's been done before or it's been said before, you know, and 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 I think Vinaja was saying something earlier about generational disparities, and I feel like now in this new world, it's important that we address that and we see how can we create that cross generational conversation. You know, how can we how can we create communities around it where we can share perspectives? So I definitely feel like we're in a portal and that portal is, is happening. And I feel like on the second point, I think, Joe, you were asking, how did the pandemic change the activism? Did you ask that? I think quickly, um, for me personally, and I'd love to hear what everyone else, like everyone else's opinions are about this. Um, for me, it definitely taught me um, pragmatism. And how to to strategize and to to, to be tactical and to men, and how do I say it like this? I guess this summer, at the start, and obviously we'll come back to this. It was quite reactionary, you know. All the things that went down, it was really like, whoop, we got a goal. What's happening? Da, 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 da. And you know that's all good and great, but sometimes it pays off to be like, okay, this is happening, but how can I step back? How can I look? How can I? What can I put here? What can I do instead of this? How can I create alternatives? You know, and I feel like for me personally, in the, in the way that we work at the tribe, it's definitely now a thing of, okay, this is happening. How can we ensure that we're not reacting, but we're responding to the situation and how are we, and I think just 
exercise and ingenuity. Because again, this is something that, and I might, I might just be a, so I, I'm a simple boy. You get, and maybe people do this already, but um, yeah, just exercise and ingenuity. You know, like okay, let's think of innovative ways that we can be doing this. Because unfortunately, in our education systems. We're not, we don't, we're not allowed to think. Yeah, we think and we copy and we write things down and we memorize, but there aren't really spaces to think. And I feel like, yeah, this pandemic in the world setting on fire has definitely burnt some things down and it's definitely allowed for some ceilings to get some sunlight on our head. So, yeah, I think for me, in terms of the pandemic changing my activism, yeah, it's definitely become a lot more strategic, you know. But then also, equally, I feel like, I'm sorry for going on. Um, just listening, you know, and being receptive. Cause I know we, we talk a lot about community, but you know, sometimes it's equal. It's, it's really, I feel like we kind of underestimate the gift of like listening and taking in and again, being respect, re- receptive. Cause it's all well and good for us to express and contribute, but equally we should be able to receive, you know, and I feel like that's a really big thing for me and that, and this pandemic. Yeah, that would, that would be it. That would be it for me. But um, I want to see what you guys thought about that question. That was interesting. Yeah. Just quickly on, on that. So I actually met Edward at one in the morning in a Zoom call in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement (laughs) where we were having a very stressful meeting, first meeting with a group of us who were trying to organise like the online protest that was happening. And yeah, I just remember that being quite funny. But also me, I was like hugely, hugely impressed by this group. This was when Tribe Names Tari was LDN BLM. This group of um, people who were all younger than me. And I mean, I'm, I only turned 23 last week. And all for like very young people who were so clued up and cared so deeply. And I guess what you were saying is you were having to be quite reactionary because suddenly people cared about black people. Um, and suddenly there were all these protests and you were all kind of having to like create a whole new movement in that really stressful and quite and really deeply painful time for the black community I remember just I was really like um taken aback by how you were all even able to do that because I know that I felt quite like held in um in a lot of pain and and fear during that time um and so just like really quickly I'd really love to hear about um like what it was like creating a new movement like in the midst of everything that was going on in the world um, <laughs> I, I'm just remembering that night we met. It was crazy. Like, I was like, 1 a.m., Michaela drops on the Zoom. Everyone's like, ah, <laughs> it was so <laughs> Now, literally, man, um, hmm, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it, and even me, um, reliving it, it definitely brings, and I, again, if I'm being honest, it brings some pain as I kind of think about it. Um, yeah, it was it was bittersweet, man. This summer was it was it was, sorry, last summer was it was interesting. Um yeah. It and like you said, it yeah, last 2020, particularly like, you know, just after the execution of George, it it was deep, man. And I'm gonna try my best not to like go on, but um because I just felt, at least for me. And a lot of the people at the tribe, like we, everything just kind of, the world was already on a standstill. And then um, when Armad happened and Breonna, and then um, when George's execution started circulating everywhere, it was tough because, you, all right, cool. So you've got a pandemic happening. You've got misinformation about this and this and this and then 5G and all of this, different things were going on. And me personally, I remember because I had just come back from uni, it was locked down. 
you know, I'm trying to process that already. You know, I'm coming away from stuff. I'm detoxing. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to shut off to the world. And then this happens. And, you know, I, I remember news channels showcasing someone's execution like, on like, you know, and it was, it, it felt surreal to me because it's like, this is actually the reality, you know? And so when everything kicked off the way that I did in lots of, cause what the idea was, and initially like, um, okay, like we were initially LDMBLM, you know, and how that happened was, so I'm on my phone and a friend of mine sends me um, the video and I had already said to myself, yo, I'm not looking at anything, but I didn't know it was and I saw it. So when I saw it, like we said before, like it just lit something up, a fire started going and literally what the idea was, well, I, I went on my, on my Instagram, I was like, guys, like, what? You should have a sitting at the American Embassy. This is crazy. No, 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 no. I remember like a group of us just started thinking, yeah, how are we doing this? How are we doing this? And that's where that pragmatism kicked in because it was like, hold on, guys. Yes, we need to do this, but this pandemic is killing members of our community. And that's not exclusively just because of the disease in itself. It's also the institutional and structural factors that play a part in people dying. So we're like, hold on a second, guys. Let's be strategic about this. Let's come back to this. Um, so I remember we kind of said, all right, we're going to plan out something, see how we can do something differently. And then a couple of days later, like, the UK just lit up. <laughs> you know, I remember like there were protests in Birmingham, London, and we were like, yeah, okay. This is what's happening. Um, and it's great. But a lot of the protests, were, like they weren't vetted. People didn't know about knowing their rights. There weren't any masks going on. So then that's when we turned into LD and BLM. And we were like, all right, guys, let's, play a facilitation role in this and let's like, let's get the mask on, let's get supplies down to protest. Um, and just, yeah, we were, we were running workshops and it was just kind of crazy how amidst all that chaos and disorder, we kind of came together and we kind of just strategized. Like I remember, we have a whole map of London of different spots of where we put stuff and we literally just call out restaurant owners like, yeah, guys, can you guys put this up? And they would and that, and that was so beautiful. But then there were also nights where, um, you know, <laughs> there was one time, there was this one time where I think, um, and bear in mind, our youngest member, he's 16, and he was doing all the legal work. Like, he was getting people out of um, police detainment and stuff like that. I remember there was one night where, um, I think it was just after a protest. I think this is the Hyde Park protest, the really big one. That happened. And, you know, we're all kind of chilling. It's like six, not chilling, but we're like, you know, 6 p.m., we can kind of calm down. The protest is done. You know, we're just kind of trying to just get ready for the next subsequent ones. And we get a text message from some of our volunteers on the ground. And we're like, yo, what's, what's, what's happening? They're like, yo, um, police have kettled us in and the protest ended three hours ago. You know, we have people that haven't, that haven't eaten, people haven't had any water to drink. We're having women that are having to like, you know, use like literally relieve themselves in the crowd because the police won't let them out you know we have um it's it's freezing people don't have jackets on you know and the police have got everyone in and bear in mind police were ripping off face masks to identify people in a pandemic you know and it's like and i remember this was like it was like 6 p.m so i'm thinking wait what so then from 6 to about 4 a.m like everything just switched around like that night then became about us all right guys we gotta get people together quickly we got to get down there. We need to get people out of prison. Like, it was it was just all really, um, yeah, it was, you know, you got nice like that. And I feel like in terms of the question, because I don't, I'm sorry, guys, I don't want to turn this into an origin story, I promise. But just in terms of, like, creating the movement, we realised that ultimately 
you know, um, at least in, in our community, we realize that our people are, you know, um, our deaths are commodified. They're put into documentaries. They're put on T-shirts, websites, Netflix specials. It was, we're just, you know, we're, we're almost shrouded in sorrow and pain and the anguish is consumed and just enjoyed and put around. And we kind of, I think for us, like, and the thing that we pride ourselves on is the, um, the healing aspect. And we saw that, yeah, this reactionary period, it's pain. We're operating out of pain. We're operating out of sorrow. And, you know, and we realize, guys, we now need to kind of insert ourselves. Yes, the facilitation is great. And this is how the transition happened because we realized, guys, this is of greater importance. We have to go beyond. There has to become a conversation around healing. What does healing look like? You know, how do we give power to the people in the sense where it isn't just a, because even with the protest to an extent, and, you know, I'm one for protesting, you know, I hear it because that's human expression. It's essential that we get, we're allowed, and we have the agency to do that. You know, but a lot of the elders in the community were like, guys, like, it's all well and good to be protesting, but what's the purpose behind it? You know, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? What's the why factor? And, you know, it was great to hear reasons like, oh, guys, yeah, we're protesting so Keir Starmer can bring up racism in the House of Commons. But it's like, guys, it has to go beyond that. What are the aims? Why are we doing it? You know, and so for us, like, we, we, we then started thinking, guys, we need to make mutual grounds of discourse where it isn't just people on a, a megaphone screaming. It's a two-way conversation. It's communalism. It's a community. And I remember, like, we, when we started, when we did turn into TNA, we would have rallies in the community and it'd be a situation where we all, we'd be a, a group of people and we split up into three groups and we'll go away. And one of the questions would be like, right now in this community, what's the most important thing that we need? And people would go off. We'd all feed off. It, we were on the main road. Like, we'd just go off, talk about it, come back and discuss. And we'd have tangible solutions that, like, yeah, this is what we're doing. And that's when it, it keyed in our head that, like, yeah, this movement needs to be about impact. It needs to be about healing because that is something that the summer, at least to me, and obviously, Michaela, you can, and, and Kadush, you guys can t- tell me more if you guys disagree. But I feel like this summer really nailed home that, yo, People need healing. People need different forms of healing. And it needs to, again, it goes back to my rebuilding point. How do you rebuild something that's been damaged? But yeah, that's that's me. I'm going to try to keep, I'm going to really end, but that's all I wanted to say on that. Hopefully that answers your question. so much for for sharing all of that like that was like a lot of emotional things um does anyone want to kind of um off the back of that say something like I don't know if Katusha if you want to say something or Nadia if you want to um yeah um thank you Edward because that was obviously really interesting perspective and so good to like I'm just I'm really relieved with how you like framed it to say that there was the very sort of impassioned element to the process last summer, but that you're keen to kind of create something tangible, you know, because I feel like the work that you're doing to bring everybody kind of up to speed and to align the kind of agenda that we need to have as a people is really, really important. And I don't think that it's given enough attention because as you said, I think anything that black people do is kind of up to be bought and sold. So when you see, so I feel like 
yeah, sort of grassroots work, like what you're doing really brings the power back to what we're supposed to do. And even though the world is watching, when everybody decides that Black lives matter conditionally, they still have to matter to us. It still needs to be something that we are prioritizing. We can't be incentivized by the ruckus created by everybody else. This needs to be an ongoing thing. I think I keep going back to that point, so I'm really relieved that you raised it as well in the work that you do, because I feel like as a Black person who is Black 24-7, who is Black irrespective of context, who lives within, within the Black experience, on the periphery of the Black experience <laughs> as a disabled woman, I just, you know, you want to see like people within your community invested in that sort of healing and development and growth. And you know what I mean? Making sure that people are drawing, like you said, on that intergenerational knowledge and understanding that we're not, we do stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and that the information is there, the knowledge is there, the strategies are there, the ideas are there. And within the social change ecosystem, everybody has something to contribute based on their skill set, but that has to be rounded out and grounded in a radical conception of liberation as opposed to something that they've been fed by the mainstream you can't get your conception of what black liberation looks like from the mainstream it needs to be coming from it needs to be incentivized by what you feel that's dissatisfaction in you that burns for something more and then it needs to be layered and compounded by the knowledge of people who have already produced that so yeah that's what I really want so hearing you say that's just it's made me really happy um, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's it's really powerful you you speak about that. Um and kind of I guess looking maybe at the other side of the coin, like so we've talked about like grassroots organizing. Obviously, Nadia, like you've been this was like your first year in parliament. You were one of the young well, you are the youngest in there, um, in the belly and the beast. Um, but also you've been like working as a carer, so you've kind of been on like two different front lines. Um, could you speak a little bit about like how that was for you and like, you know, just like generally how it's been to have to like navigate those two spaces, especially being, I guess, parliament, we've said it earlier, like can be a very difficult um, space. And I imagine for you, it's been quite difficult generally. But Yeah, I, well, I, I firstly wanted to come back to what Edward and Katusha said about Black Lives Matter, because I think that that has been the greatest social movement of this year and not just of this year, but it will move far beyond that. And it's it's not just about, um, about hearing black voices, but about liberation for black people and for that to be decided by black people. And um, I, I think Katouche raised an important point um, in fact, it was Edward, but Katush, you touched on it as well, about Parliament and sort of the limitations of Parliament. And um, I, I think the BLM protests were a reminder to us that that kind of structural social change isn't going to be handed down from on high by politicians because it never has been. It's going to be one from the grassroots upwards and this isn't just a slogan it's not just a moment it's not just about accepting that black lives matter it's about challenging and changing every single 
facet of structural inequality that that sort of holds up white supremacy. And I, I just want to say how inspired I've been by it and how honoured I've been to be able to amplify that in Parliament and also to attend the, the Nottingham Black Lives Matter demonstration, which was attended by about 4,000 people. It was huge. Um, and I, I think we're really, well, I was going to say at the start of something, but this, this was never the start. This has been a centuries long struggle. But um, I think despite the fact that this government has used things like the toppling of the Colston statue, which was a cause for celebration and a celebration that the Labour, the Labour Party and the Labour movement should be, should be part of and supporting. Um, even though they've used that, the, the government has used that as um, ammunition in a culture war, I think people like Edward Katouche and hundreds of thousands of others have shown that black people and particularly young black people are not getting back in their box. And that's really powerful. Um, about, sorry, I've forgotten the, what was the actual question that you asked? Being also in parliament, um, why is being such a radical, young, powerful woman, um, but also your background as working in a like as a carer um, and your experience with being fired for speaking out around like PPE shortages and, you know, why is like, yeah, being a grassroots activist whilst being also in parliament, I guess those things are, they're not that common, you know, so um, yeah, kind of just whatever you want to share about that with us. Yeah, there's obviously a huge contrast between being a care worker and being a member of parliament. Um, for a start, I was paid about eight quid an hour as a care worker and over 80 grand a year as an MP. Um, at the time that I went back to work to my previous job and, and worked with my colleagues back on the front line, Pretty Patel was calling care workers low skills and was at the same time trying to stop care workers from coming to this country. Um, and Edward and Katusha have already spoken about the hostile environment being maintained as an ultimate priority for this government, even during a global pandemic. Like how long did they wait to deport people? Two hours um, at the earliest possible opportunity. Um, so uh, I think for me, returning to work was very much a practical act of solidarity with my former colleagues because I knew that the burden of, um, of the pandemic would be falling on social care. And that means social care workers. It means low paid, mainly women, um, often women of color and migrant women. Um, and it was, in a sense, it was, it felt like going home and being back with my, my friends and my, my former colleagues. And I was very, very happy. And it was, it was really, really special as well to, to see people who I'd cared for and who had kind of seen me grow up. Um, so it was, it was very, very difficult um, being so publicly sacked. Um, 
But I suppose the the issue there is not me losing my second job because I'm not relying on the minimum wage to pay my bills and feed my family. And, you know, I was giving it to the mutual aid fund anyway, and it wasn't very much because it's a minimum wage job, more or less. Um, The point is that this is happening. There's a silencing of care workers and a general undervaluing and underpaying of care workers across the country. So I was I felt very privileged to be able to use my position to to highlight that and to shine a light on the real issue, which isn't my individual circumstances, but the the wider problem Um, on sort of being an MP and being the youngest MP. It's yeah, it all happened very, very quickly. It was sort of, yeah, I had to get used to it over a weekend getting elected and then I was in Parliament on the Monday. Um, but I'm I'm very I make sure that I'm still a normal 24-year-old because I think that in itself, being a working class woman of colour and a socialist who's rooted in my community is in itself a bit of a radical act in Parliament. Um, I think we're we're told what what leadership should look like when actually leadership is not just bottoms up white middle class men. It's people in our workplaces, in our communities. It's um, it's our trade union reps. You know, um, it's the youth climate strikers who were too young even to vote, let alone to to be representatives in Parliament. Um, so I think I think it's important to 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 kind of uphold people's right to joy as well, and to say no, I'm I reject that that image and that um, that sort of mould of an authoritarian, top-down, usually white, usually male, usually middle-aged and middle-class, and we're going to do things differently. And I, I really believe that our generation is going to change the structure and the way that we, the way that we do politics, as well as just our sort of theoretical politics. Yeah, definitely. And I want to say that like all three, all you three are leaders and so many people are leaders. And I see so many people um, being leaders in the world who don't realise they're leaders because they don't think they fit into this mould. Um, and I think that like all of all of your work separately has really inspired me and like has led parts of my life. Um, like Nadia, I, I remember when um, when you became an MP and I remember having a discussion with my family when you decided to redistribute your... Um, your salary and that was a big discussion in, in the in the Loach household and it was really great because it started really good discussions about like wealth and 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 those different things and I think that that's that is a that's also like obviously you are leading because you're an MP but that's also a form of leadership through your actions as well um and I think that there are so many people who are leading in different ways that might not fit into that mold um sorry I just keep on like rambling on in between I'm not I'm gonna just be hosting and not just talking <laughs> So just as a final question for everyone, because time absolutely flies. Um, we just want to ask about, we talked about like all these kind of different movements and we know that COVID and change was like a very big um, topic to have within like an hour. Um, but we just wanted to ask about, so these different movements we've talked about, we talked about like the Black Lives Matter movement, we talked about disabilities movements, we talked about um, workers movements and di- loads of all these different spaces. Um, 
but at least our belief under the Yikes podcast and like Joe and I's belief is that we want like collective liberation for all of us and part of that is connecting our struggles and it's realizing how our struggles are interconnected and they overlap and so kind of connecting those struggles is important for collective liberation um and I just want to ask um like how anyone's welcome to answer and we'll get an answer from all of you before we close but um how can we collaborate um our movement so that we can move towards this collective liberation and kind of a second part to that is like how do you envision a connected future connected future I know that's a big question so um (laughs) ideally in like a sentence or two if everyone wants to feed in Katush can we go is it right if we go to you first yeah no problem we'll come to me first um it's a great question um so the question is how do I envision collective liberation yeah and like connected future and like connecting our movements um I think I think it's for me it's absolutely paramount that um we are investigating um, our positionality as individuals and as wider groups. As we begin to unravel the ball that is discrimination, that is like structural inequality, everybody's um, lived experience is going to be called into question. And how prepared are we, everybody, to part with the privilege that we have. I think there's the, that duality of that we lean into these things for survival because we all sit on a spectrum of varying levels of layers of oppression and privilege. But it's not just about, to me, it's not just about acknowledging that you have a privilege, which I think has become a really lazy shorthand of our very PC kind of context as like younger people, as people invested in social change. It's very easy to say, I have X privilege and Y privilege and everyone claps for you. I have privilege and they said so. You know, what I need, I need something more tangible. I need, so like what Nadia raised about how, about how she redistributes, you know, her salary to me, that's absolutely mind boggling. I don't think, I don't know many people who would do that irrespective of however oppressed or non-oppressed they'd be people are very keen to hold on to what they have like that relative privilege for some people is the be all and end all it shapes their experience because we don't live in a vacuum you know we live in a society that's very layered and our experiences are very much contingent on the oppression of others in order for some of us to live and be in a space where we don't have to consider X, Y, and Z. Somebody else has to consider that. And that kind of thought process and considering how your actions bleed into other things is to me gonna be what makes or breaks it. Because at the moment, when the sort of earlier stages at the moment in that we're looking at things from a very, I need to, you know, in being formed, I need to be abreast everything, but Beyond that, like even having this conversation, it's not just to say, oh, everything, if you do that, you have to go to here and there. And do you want to wear a burlap sack and drink a drop of water every day? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it just, the connectivity needs to increase a lot more and we need to be prepared essentially to part with that privilege. And that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have, especially if you're somebody on the receiving end of oppression, because you understand how pervasive that is, that you couldn't, sometimes it's hard to consider how you can then replicate that 
behavior in the context of somebody else. But it's very possible and it happens in every which way we can think of. So I think something that's more globalized, less static, something encompassing of the so-called global South, you know, because I think we we as like minorities, most of us are minorities, we kind of sit here and we, we, you know, we really sit in our, my identity as somebody within this diasporic space as a displaced person, but almost like places where we've come from and where people like us look are a figment of the imagination, you know? And I think having that conversation that crosses borders and that rejection of how borders constrain how we think and I think makes it very me-centered. I'm experiencing this oppression. I am going through this. There's so much more to this movement than that. And I think we want to see the movement actually develop and not just, you know, stay stagnate or become stagnant. We we need to be prepared to part with that privilege and be prepared to actually make the sacrifices that people will be able to make, were able to make before. And I think the second thing, I'm sorry, this is a very long answer, but the second thing I think we need to make sure that the information that we're using is being disseminated properly. We need that kind of a lateral spread. When I look at things that have happened and gone on in the past, we're very transfixed on like a messianic figure. You know, we want one person to have all the brilliant answers. And whilst there's some people who are really gifted in being able to bring things across and bring people together, that's important. We need to be able to all bring something to the table so that it's we create a hydra for essentially for people who are pushing back against what we want. We want if they cut off the head that five more heads are coming out. That's what we need. Rather than every time, you know, your Lumumba dies, your Morris Bishop dies. You know what I mean? You can't just have your Fanon dies. You can't have the movement just dissipate completely. It needs to be something that just keeps coming back because essentially that's what's being done on the reverse. Irrespective of whoever's in place, there's a collective agenda that goes against our interests, that persists irrespective of who's there. So I think it's important that we are really thinking about making sure things are more fluid, less static, and that everything is being spread across. The intentions, our conception of reality is being agreed across boards and people are prepared to part with the privilege that compromises other people within this movement. Yep, that's me done. Oh, that was- I love it. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> like a whole sermon (laughs) that was amazing like yeah thank you so much for sharing that Mm. with us Nadia do you want to go next because we saw you clapping as well that was that was incredible that's actually made me feel pretty emotional I just agree with every single word that you said wholeheartedly um I think it's firstly actually realizing that our struggles are interconnected um Secondly, I really agree with what you said about organising beyond borders. The far right organises beyond borders and so must we in an even more powerful and far reaching way. Um, I think non-hierarchical organising is really important. We shouldn't idolise leaders and politicians. We, We need to be far more non-hierarchical in the way that we operate, in the way that we think. Um, And then lastly, I'd say we need to situate our struggle within a wider political framework. So, for example, capitalism is central to oppression in society. 
whether it's class-based, racist, misogynistic, transphobic, capitalism is fueling the climate crisis, it's causing the housing crisis, and all of us should be anti-capitalist. Mic drop. Um, <laughs> that was so great. Um, I love that. Um, I just wanted to say before the end of the podcast, mm-hmm. that this has been such a special and important space. And I, I really do feel so honoured to, to have been a part of it. I'm so happy that this exists and that everyone is doing this amazing work. It really gives me so much hope. Yeah, me too. I think that like just hearing other people who have these amazing thoughts and processing these big things that I think, especially all of us as young people, or also Edward, I will let you speak in one sec. Um, us all as young people, we're just trying to make sense of the world, I feel like in so many ways. And that's why I think that young people are so important to movements because like we challenge things, we challenge everything. And it's really great to hear other people who are just also challenging everything and processing everything and trying to find ways to express it and create change and create a new future. Um, And I'm just so grateful to have been able to share space with you. And Edward, would you like to kind of finish us on that point? No, definitely, thank you. And I like, yeah, what's just been like the discourse today has been so beautiful and I'm just like literally God bless you guys for like allowing me to be a part of it um I just want to speak to like everyone the 90 people that are in here the people that are live streaming as well like um how do I put it like this the humanist future that we are seeking and we are trying to build and conceptualize I think we have to understand that it life isn't about us and it is about us and, you know, like we, we discussed just now about cults of personalities, we need to do away with leaders, we need to do away with cults of personalities and persona and remove the persona from the contribution in terms of the, the future we want to build. So I just want to speak to everyone here saying, yo, like, literally, when we talk about how can we make our movements connected, let's invest in the the systems that have been de- designed to unite us, you know, cross-continentally. Um, Katusha's talking about our global south. It's imperative because people love to talk about multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism, but how do we how do we actually make sure we cross those bridges, have those conversations? I'd say people like get on Zooms, attend seminars. You know, people are people that use Clubhouse, go on Clubhouse, have conversations with someone else that's in, I don't know, in um West um West 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 Papua or Papua New Guinea. You know, um utilize the platforms that we have. And I feel like people within themselves, like you are your own leaders. And I feel like the 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 autonomy that's been given to us, we should exercise that in any way that we can. You know, get on your platform, speak, have those uncomfortable conversations. You know, the, the contribution actually starts with us. And you guys, you guys said it eloquently, a lot better than I would have said it. But yeah, it starts with us and we just need to get, we have to get organized and I'll keep it real. But yeah, that's what I wanted to say. so much um i feel like i've had like almost like the entire conversation i've just had chills uh just listening to you all like it's been so beautiful um um yeah like you know get connected like i just said um i don't know about clubhouse i heard it's like it's very scary <laughs> i heard it's violent on there like i'm, I'm scared worse than Twitter. i'm yeah. too scared to go i'm sorry everyone also i don't have an iphone too. but <laughs> um, but yeah i think like as yeah, as ever was saying like get organized I think that's one thing yeah. anyone who's here like 
get involved in your community, get involved in a group. Like get the, we are so much stronger when we work together and when we work yeah. as a collective and when we listen to as many people as possible. And when we kind of inf- like, I, I kind of try and describe it as the future that we're moving towards. We want to kind of anchor our soul in this best place possible. And then our actions will hopefully move us towards there. But the best future that we could imagine won't even be the best it could possibly be. Um, Mm. And the way that we can try and make it even better is by listening to people with really different um, perspectives and life experiences than we have. And always always allowing ourselves to be challenged to make that future better and to act to create that better future. Um, So I really hope that everyone has been inspired in the same way that I know that Joe and I have been mm-hmm. um by the words that have been shared and the experiences that have been shared here I wish we had like eight hours but then no one would watch um, <laughs> um <laughs> that would also, be top off then <laughs> um, but um I've like it's been a, like, yeah. a huge huge honor to share this space with all of you and please do like share it with other people but also yeah. I really always encourage people after you've been to a webinar or you've listened to a podcast or something if it's moved you sit with that information don't just move on to the next thing I know that everyone wants to go and watch Drag Race but like go and sit and like write down some bullet points or things that you want to keep with you and things you want to challenge yourself on Um, and don't just let this moment pass Um, let it kind of cause some change within yourself Um, because I think all of us who are here that have given up some time in the evening to hear about this all of us kind of want to move towards a collective future and that requires challenging ourselves that requires as Katusha was saying like challenging our privilege and where we sit in society and that is a very active process that's not some sort of passive thing that we sit with and so I hope that everyone will be part of that um, and I'm so encouraged by all of you and everyone who's come along and seeing the lovely like thanks that are going through in the chat as well um, I just want to thank the panellists again yep. for being here um, yeah thank you so much yeah I hope everyone has a really beautiful beautiful evening gosh we really hope that you all enjoyed that so much like I'm still reeling from Mm. that um I had chills like whole way Mm -hmm. through yeah 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 we kept messaging each other during it um being like I can't believe this is so great like they're they're all incredible and (laughs) I was so challenged as well by Mm. what people were saying and I think that that is so important um yeah I just I'm still processing a lot of what what went on and yeah it was so great so we hope that everyone really really enjoyed that um just as a little reminder to um if you're listening to this podcast especially on apple Podcasts, if you could rate the podcast um with five stars um that's what we'd recommend (laughs) the rating to be um (laughs) then that would be really great because it helps the podcast reach more people Mm -hmm. um if you do have any like negative reviews you can send those to the yikes podcast or the yikes pod at gmail.com um as that would be a better place to reach us with that um i've been mckayla loach and I'm Josephine Becker. And this podcast is um, sound edited and all the music is by Finley Mowit. Um, we want to make a special thank you to our patrons for supporting our work um, and for making all of this work possible. And we'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>